Hello, and welcome to Thoughts of a Bearded Man. I'm your host, Graham Newman. November is probably one of my favourite times of the year. I love those really chilly mornings with crisp, bright blue skies. Although, to be fair, most of November so far this year has been a pretty cold and wet affair. But for me, there is an almost refreshing and cleansing feeling to November. Summer is long gone for another year, and we have glossed over All Hallows' Eve, or Halloween, as it is more commonly known. And as with many quote-unquote traditions, the origins of this marked occasion has been lost, marked now with fancy dress and trick-or-treat chocolates and sweets. So, a little history lesson, if you'll indulge me. There are many potential origins for Halloween, and while some hold with the theory that it derives from Celtic harvest festivals, where they would celebrate their new year on the 1st of November. This day marked the end of summer and the harvest and the beginning of the dark, cold winter, a time of year that was often associated with human death. And Kels believed that on the night before the new year, the boundary between the worlds of the living and the dead became blurred. And on the night of October 31st, they celebrated Samhain, when it was believed that the ghosts of the dead returned to earth. By AD 43, the Roman Empire had conquered the majority of Celtic territory, and in the course of the 400 years that they ruled the Celtic lands, two festivals of Roman origin were combined with the traditional Celtic celebration of Samhain. The first was Ferileia, a day in late October when Romans traditionally commemorated the passing of the dead. The second was a day to honour Pomona, the Roman goddess of fruit and trees. The symbol of Pomona is the apple, and the incorporation of this celebration into Samhain probably explains the tradition of bobbing for apples that is practised today on Halloween. And by May 13 AD 609, Pope Boniface IV dedicated the Pantheon in Rome in honour of all Christian martyrs, and the Catholic feast of All Martyrs' Day was established in the Western Church. Pope Gregory III later expanded the festival to include all saints as well as all martyrs and moved the observance from the 13th of May to November the 1st. By the 9th century, the influence of Christianity had spread into Celtic lands where it gradually blended with and supplanted older Celtic rites. And in AD 1000, the church made November the 2nd All Souls Day, a day to honour the dead. And it's widely believed today that the church was attempting to replace the Celtic festival of the dead with a related church-sanctioned holiday. All Souls Day was celebrated similarly to Samhain, with big bonfires, parades and dressing up in costumes as saints, angels and even devils. The All, the All Saints Day celebration was also called All Hallows or All Hallow Mass. And the night before it, the traditional night of Samhain in the Celtic religion began to be called All Hallows' Eve and eventually Halloween. So you see, while it may be very exciting for kids to dress up in their Halloween costumes and go out trick-or-treating, which in and of itself is a bit strange, as parents you spend the rest of the year telling your kids not to take sweets from strangers, but on this one night it seems to be okay. And yes, I know, most of the time the parents are with their children, but not always. It may also be exciting to decorate your house with creepy epitomes of ghosts, ghouls, witches, mummies or zombies and throw a Halloween themed party. 
After all, there are plenty of adult options out there now for costumes. But the point is this. Halloween was never meant to be marked as an evening of fear. It was instead meant to be an evening to remember and honour those who had passed from this world. Of course there are theories regarding the haunting of vengeful spirits that may act out some form of revenge upon the living at this time of year, but for the most part the traditions have been lost to the commercial opportunities of selling an awful lot of chocolates and sweets. Interestingly, Halloween spending in the UK is estimated to total 777 million in 2023, and that's up 13% from an estimated 687 million in 2022. Okay, so you may be asking yourself right now, what on earth has this got to do with November and the title of this episode? Well, bear with me. November has many of its own traditions. One of the most famous is Guy Fawkes and Bonfire Night, and I'm sure I don't need to remind you of the date. And at the time of recording this episode, that's now passed as well. But the night before is known as Mischief Night, and may also have its origins in the Penny of the Guy collections, where an effigy of Guy Fawkes would be paraded through the streets before he would be burned on the bonfire heap. Along with many other long-forgotten traditions that I won't bore you with, you'll be pleased to hear, November is also the month of remembrance for those who gave their lives in World Wars 1 and 2 and to remember all serving personnel. And also at the time of recording this, we've also gone past uh, Armistice Day and Remembrance Sunday. But November has also given rise to a new quote-unquote tradition. Well, two new traditions. Movember and No Nut November. But for this episode, I'm going to talk about Movember. Maybe we will tackle the connotations of No Nut November on another episode, but probably not, to be fair. The Movember movement came to fruition in 2003 when two friends in Australia, Travis Garone and Luke Slattery, decided to start a joke amongst their friends by bringing back the fashion of growing a moustache. Later on, they decided to associate the challenge with a blue ribbon, much like the one used to advocate for breast cancer, and in order to campaign for men's mental health, uh, sorry, for men's health. With just 30 guys joining them on this adventure, Travis and Luke decided to use this as a means to raise awareness and funds for prostate cancer. By 2004, 450 MoBros across Australia, the UK and Spain had joined the cause and through the movement, 54,000 Australian dollars were donated to the Prostate Cancer Foundation of Australia. The growth of Movember didn't stop there. As it began to grow more popular across the globe, the campaign travelled to New Zealand, the US and Canada, eventually raising enormous awareness of men's health issues and raising 21.5 million Australian dollars to sponsor more than 770 men's health projects. So the Movember movement can proudly say that it has tackled three of the biggest killers of men by raising awareness and funds for mental health and suicide prevention, prostate and testicular cancer. And a quick look on their website will assure you that they are not done yet. So the first observation I would like to make with regards to Movember is this. Two guys had an idea and along with 30 others they embarked on the first ever Movember challenge. Now, 20 years later, 
that seed of an idea has grown and they now have a headcount of over 6 million. Many of us, myself included, have incredible ideas, but all too often we do not see them through. And there are many reasons for this, and I know for my own part I have allowed things to pass me by because I've told myself things like, who am I to do this? Who am I to take on this issue? And why would anyone listen to me? Doubts I've told myself about a great many things. Even this podcast, and if I'm being really honest, these doubts still whisper to me now. But if not me, and if not you, then who? These guys took a bold step, and look what has been achieved for it. They had no guarantee that this joke of an idea would morph into the global movement that it has. In fact, I suspect that they were told by some that it was a silly idea and that it was a waste of time. But who knows what you could achieve if you had the courage to believe in yourself. But the second observation I would like to make is this, and it may seem to take on a negative viewpoint to begin with, but please bear with me. As amazing as the Movember movement is, it has, at least to my own mind, fallen victim to hashtag trending and the virtue signalling of our society today. What do I mean by that? Well, while I have no doubt in my mind that the guys who started Movember and those working for them now continue their fantastic work throughout the 365 days of the year, their movement will only trend during the month of November. In fact, it's not really even trending in November. I heard most about the Movember movement in October where I heard a lot of adverts on radio stations and things trying to get people to get involved in the movement uh, by signing up and everything but I've heard nothing about it at all um, during November which actually leads me on nicely to my next point is that it will only trend during November after which it will slowly fade away as the next latest trend will take its place such as our social media scrolling attention spans Look, there can be no doubt that the Movember movement has done incredibly well to raise awareness for certain topics around men's health that, let's face it, we as men generally try to avoid, particularly the issue of men's mental health. While encouraging people to get involved in Movember by growing a moustache throughout the month and using that process to have a bit of fun and raise money and awareness is not something to turn your nose up at. See what I did there? But in my own humble opinion, much like with Halloween, the origins of this activity and movement has perhaps become lost in nothing more than advertisement and marketing campaigns and people using the movement as a way to gain more likes and followers as well as to have a general feeling of contentment and altruism. No doubt we will have a plethora of celebrities and influencers using this opportunity to further their own status and platform by telling us all how they are getting involved in the movement and how close it is to their heart and encouraging you to do the same. In fact, some of these influencers may also be the same sort of people who jumped on the bandwagon with regards to toxic masculinity. So you have to be careful who you give your attention to and who you're following. But I digress. And you know what, look, maybe it is close to the hearts of some of the people that are getting involved in this movement. And I'm not knocking anybody for getting involved in it. But if we have any football fans listening, you may or may not be aware of former Tottenham Hotspur midfielder Deli Ali, who spoke out fairly recently about his own journey with mental health 
and how he considered retiring from football at just 24 years of age. I'm specifically bringing up the story of a footballer here for a number of reasons. I'm sure we can all agree that the money in football is outrageous. Many top-flight professional footballers earn the equivalent of a decent-sized three-bedroom family home a week. And their lifestyles, for any young aspiring footballer, and their lifestyles for any young aspiring footballer would be very enticing. Money would not be something to worry about. You could easily afford a high-performance car, and you are likely to have no end of attractive women that you could choose from. And if that wasn't enough, you get to play a sport that you love for a living. Can't be bad, right? For many grown men who have long since hung up their boots and given up on any idea of being a professional footballer, now spend much of their time singing the names of the likes of Deli Alley. At least all the while that such a young man is playing well and helping whichever team you support on the path to victory and ultimate glory. But what happens when that same young man starts to have what is commonly referred to as a dip in form. Sadly, football fans are some of the most fickle around. Teams, players, managers and even owners can be loved one minute and vilified the next. If a team starts to go on a losing streak, many of the supporters will turn on their team and leave the stadium before the game is over. And in some cases I understand this action. It is painful to see your team lose and to then be potentially sat in traffic or queuing to get a train home would just be adding insult to injury. But on the other hand, walking away from the team you will supposedly follow until you die simply because they are losing speaks volumes of a man's character. Quote, Faithless is he that says farewell when the road darkens. End quote. J.R.R. Tolkien so if a player starts to experience a dip in form and is no longer playing as well as they once were, with no obvious reason as to why, such as an injury, these same supporters who sung the young man's praises will now think nothing of hurling abuse at that same player. I have stood in the terraces of football matches and heard the tirade of abuse and insults hurled at players, and I am ashamed to say that I have also spoken such hateful comments to rival players or poorly performing players of the team that I support, which, coincidentally, is Tottenham Hotspur. It is very unlikely that any supporter will take the time to stop and think, maybe there is something going on with that young man outside of football. Maybe his mental health is suffering. Indeed, if you were brave enough to, pos to posit such a theory with friends post-match or perhaps in work the next day or down the pub, you are likely to be met with further abuse and insult, probably disguised as banter, as well as many suggesting what on earth has he got to be worried about? You see, there seems to be a general misconception that wealth and fame somehow insulates you from the problems of the world. Okay, maybe to a degree they do. As mentioned, with weekly wages between 150000 to 400000 a week, we can certainly all agree that footballers are not concerning themselves with the cost of living crisis. That being said, however, it doesn't mean that they aren't feeling significant pressures on other aspects of their lives. Look, I'm not making excuses for footballers here. I do believe that, as a consequence of their talent and skill, they do have to accept that once thrust into the heady heights of professional football, their lives are not necessarily their own anymore. Everything they do on and off the pitch will be scrutinised. But take a moment to consider that life for a moment. 
In fact, the comedian Sean Walsh gave a great explanation to this in one of his stand-up routines, whereby he portrayed the life of a general employee at a supermarket, struggling to get a product to scan through the till, only to be confronted with an annoyed customer shouting, why don't you F off back to Sainsbury's? Go on, F off. He continued his skit with the said employee finally getting home, thinking they can relax, only to be confronted with rumours in the paper that they are connected to a move to Lidl. Switching on the TV, they find an ex-supermarket employee analysing their day's work by saying, what is he doing? At this level, he knows he should be double bagging. Look, I'm not doing it justice. I would definitely recommend you check it out. It's a humorous sketch and it's well worth a watch. But the point is, is that their day at work is scrutinised and analysed by pundits, as well as discussed on radio shows, on social media and articles printed in the paper. They simply cannot get away from it. And so the very thing they once loved has become a burden. And so it's not hard to see how that would have an impact on their mental health. And there have been other problems that have surfaced recently, with at least two fairly prominent footballers falling foul of their excess money and time by way of gambling addiction. Now, I'm not going to get too deep into the weeds of this particular issue. While both have claimed that they're suffering from an addiction to gambling, there are plenty of commentators out there who posit the theory that, like many other diverse issues we now navigate, they may have played the addiction card as a get-out-of-jail-hail-mary because they have been caught with their hand in the cookie jar. Or maybe they do genuinely have an addiction. If that is the case, then obviously I'm sure we would all hope that they would get the help they need. If, however, it is as previously mentioned, then they should be ashamed of themselves, as it makes a mockery of the problem and those who truly do suffer with addictions. But addictions aren't a new phenomenon in football, and neither is the breaking of gambling rules. I have no doubt more professional footballers will find their names in the media for all the wrong reasons. Tony Adams, probably one of the best centre-backs to ever play the game, struggled with alcoholism, as did his teammate Paul Merson, both of whom enjoyed a great deal of success for Arsenal. But as I've already mentioned, success, fame and wealth did not necessarily mean happiness. And this is not just evident in football or the world of sports personalities. Many, to, many celebrities have or are suffering with their mental health. And sadly, far too many of them have found the pain too much to bear and have taken the ultimate decision to end it. Chester Bennington comes to mind, whom sadly took his own life on the 20th of July 2017 at the age of 41. It's the same age that I am now. Chester's struggles, Chester's struggles with mental health are well documented and started at an early age. Chester had spoken out about the sexual abuses he suffered as a child and the early onset dependency of drink and drugs. His early life had been chaotic and he had spoken about how out of control he was with the use of drugs and alcohol. And despite the success he came to have with Lincoln Park, Chester struggled with the demands of life on tour. He did manage to finally get sober and opened up to the rest of the band through very emotional therapy sessions. But he continued to struggle with his inner demons and even said that his mind was a bad neighbourhood and he shouldn't be left there alone. That there was another Chester who lived in his head that said negative things about him and wanted to take him down. Yet despite his inner turmoil, Chester did manage to carve out a relatively normal life for himself. He was married and was a father to six kids. But shortly before his own death, 
Chester lost a close friend in Chris Cornell of Soundgarden and Audio Slave. And Chris had also suffered with depression and multiple addictions and was found dead on the 18th of May 2017. Linkin Park performed their song One More Light and if you haven't heard it, go and listen to it. It's a beautiful song and it is very upsetting. But they performed their song One More Light in honour of Cornell and Chester sang Leonard Cohen's Hallelujah at Cornell's funeral on the 26th of May 2017. 55 days later, Chester Bennington would take his own life in the same way that Cornell had ended his. Heath Ledger is another example of a man who, on the face of it, appeared to have had everything, success in his career, money and fame. While it may not be clear that Heath Ledger committed suicide, the cause of his death was given as overdose, which may or may not have been accidental. But there are many articles regarding Ledger's incredible performance of the Joker and how he went about preparing for the role. Allegedly, he locked himself away in a hotel and kept a journal as the Joker, the contents of which are reported as being very dark, with Ledger writing, Bye Bye, on the back page. Whether his death was an unfortunate accident or not, his use of drugs to help him sleep certainly points towards someone whose mental health was suffering. Heath Ledger died at the age of just 28, and that is no age at all. Sadly, it is a long list of celebrities, both male and female alike, that have struggled with mental health and addiction issues who made the ultimate decision to end their lives. Yet despite these high-profile examples, the sobering fact is that this quote-unquote trend continues to rise, particularly among men. The following figures are accurate as of the 26th of May 2023. 465 people died by suicide in 2020, 338 of which were males, which is 73%, and 127 females, 27%. Males continued to account for three quarters of suicide deaths registered in 2021. 4,129 male deaths compared with 1,454 female deaths, as seen since the mid-1990s. And those statistics were taken from the Central Statistics Office. During the ad campaign to draw attention to and launch this year's Movember campaign, a challenge was set down to sign up to walk run, cycle or swim 60 kilometres over the course of November. This number was chosen to represent the fact that 60 men are lost to suicide every 60 minutes worldwide. That's a staggering number. I mean, think about it. At any given hour throughout your day, 60 men have checked out of this life by way of suicide. But why? Why are men committing suicide? In the episodes I've done for this podcast so far, I feel I've raised a number of topics and questions which, in my humble opinion, have been vast topics or complicated questions which I either didn't feel fully equipped to attempt to rationalise on my own, or that they were simply too big to address in the current episode I was discussing. The question of why men are committing suicide is just such a big question, with many complexities and sensitivities surrounding it, so I certainly wouldn't want to attempt to generalise. That being said, the statistics do speak for themselves, and here are a few more. 
74% of all suicides in the UK involve men. The rate of suicide in men, 15.4 per 100,000, is over three times higher than in women, which is 4.9 per 100,000. Men aged 45 to 64 have the highest rate of suicide by age, 20 per 100,000. And suicide is the second biggest cause of death in young males, 1 to 19 years old. So as mentioned, it's a complex topic, but I think we can try and tackle some of the reasons why men might reach such a point of desperation that suicide may seem like their only option. In the first ever episode of this podcast, entitled A Man Takes Care of What He Loves, I tackled the topic of men not taking care of themselves. And for the most part, we don't, because we don't know how. Think about it. Generations of men before us were told that they had to be strong men. In higher society, this probably presented itself by way of being a stoic. If you're a man of working class or below, it presented itself through hard manual labour, and you certainly didn't dare complain about it. It's fair to say that for many generations, it was the man who worked and earned the money for the household, while women stayed at home and raised the children. And this dynamic has left a lasting impression on men. Despite the fact that gender roles have, more or less, balanced out nowadays, we are a long way from men being the main breadwinners in many households. However, despite this, men haven't really moved away from the tradition of seeing themselves as the provider. Of course, in our very primitive forms, the term provider meant the provisions of shelter, food, safety and warmth. But in our modern existence, these things are still important and form the basis of things that we need to be provided for. But finding shelter, however, comes in the form of buying or renting a suitable home. Food is sourced by means of a trip to the local supermarket or having it delivered as opposed to scouting out and hunting your prey. And safety is a somewhat assumed assurance as we put our trust in others behaving themselves and authorities such as governments, councils and police to uphold and enforce the law. But don't get me started on that. So how does a man fulfill his ingrained duty to provide in our modern times? In my humble opinion, we place a lot of importance on material things these days, such as the cars we drive to our smartphones, watches, TVs, and so on, as well as expensive luxuries. Don't get me wrong here, I'm not suggesting that we shouldn't be able to enjoy these things. Many of us work very hard to be in a position to afford such, luxur such luxuries. So I'm not suggesting that we should all go live a hermit lifestyle. But what happens if you can't provide many of the things that we believe make for a happy life? For a man, if he feels he is failing to live up to the expectations that he believes he should be achieving by way of provision for his family, what is he to do? It's unlikely that he will discuss his perceived shortcomings with his significant other. After all, what man wants to look like a failure in front of the person that he loves and wants to provide for? He is also unlikely to open up to a friend about his perceived inability to be able to buy all the things that he thinks he needs to make the lives of his family more comfortable and enjoyable. No. A man in this situation is more likely to double down. And what does that look like? In some cases, that will be taking on more hours at work to try to earn more money. If there isn't an opportunity to work more hours at his current job, he may take on a second job 
or look to do job for others during his time away from work, for cash in hand. Unless he's a tradesman, of course, in which case cash in hand is just a way to get around the tax man. I'm just jesting, but there is truth in it. But what if none of these options are available? Perhaps one of the easiest ways to get into debt is through credit cards. And if you have a good credit rating, many banks and credit suppliers will practically throw their cards at you, enticing you in with deals of 0% APR for a set period of time. And you know what? If you're going to make an expensive purchase on a credit card and you have every intention to pay the balance off in the set period of time, then have at it. It's likely to improve your credit score all the more. Though, of course, there is an argument to say that if you had the means to pay the item off during the set period of time, why not pay for it directly at the point of purchase or wait until you can afford it? This, of course, speaks to delayed gratification and credit cards have helped to relieve us of that rather troublesome discipline. It's easy to lose track of the amount of money you are spending on a credit card. The total tops up, tots up and before you know where you are, you may have amassed a debt that you never had the means to pay off. And missing payments is painful when the 0% APR disappears and you didn't read the percentage of the interest that would be applied in the small print. So now the issue may be starting to compound upon itself. When things become desperate, a man may decide to look for other quick fix options. For instance, buying a scratch card or a cheeky bet on a horse race. And they may seem like, in a, like an innocent bit of fun to begin with. Or you may just have a lucky throw of the dice if you were to win. But it can set in motion the wheels of addiction. Well, I won on that horse. If I just use my winnings for the 238 atrium. How many times have you had a playful bet with a mate? Lost and then uttered, come on, one more go. Double or nothing. Other quick fix options may be to sell certain items that you may believe hold a significant financial value. Golf clubs, musical instruments, record collections, or maybe the family silver. Okay, so maybe some of those references are outdated, but you get my point. And if things become really desperate, a man might make a decision to seek money through a loan shark, or maybe even turn to criminal activities. I appreciate that the picture I'm painting here is rather grim, and for many of us, thankfully isn't our path we have had to go down, and I would hope we never would have to either. But there are men out there right now, as I prepare this episode and as you listen to it, who are reaching that state of desperation because it has all spiralled out of control. And if we aren't battling our ingrained duty to provide on that front, then we are also having to justify our desire to provide for our family against a constant barrage of such a role being interpreted as our continued attempts to assert our patriarchal dominance over women. What utter nonsense! It is not that we see our provision of things as a means to some proprietary rights over the women in our lives or over our families. It is simply that we love our wives, we love our significant others, we love our children and our families, and we want to give them the life they deserve. And it is a responsibility that many men take very seriously, and we should. And another role that men want to take is that of protector. Many social commentators believe that the need to be protective over your wife and family is not such a necessity anymore. I mean, we live in modern times now, after all. We aren't being raided by neighbouring villages or foreign invaders anymore. We have law and policy makers now and police who take care of the protecting. 
we can all just relax and get soft around the midsection and just generally be weak-minded, weak-willed and physically weak men. Wrong. As men, we should want to be the first person to be stood in front of our families if ever we were confronted with a threat. We've discussed this before, and I believe that many of you listening have thought, well, if my family were under threat, I could protect them. Could you? Maybe you've even thought, if someone broke into my house, I would. And you can insert whatever John Wick, Jason Bourne fantasy you have about yourself here. I'm not knocking you guys. I've said these things myself. But if you were to put yourself through any real kind of physical exertion, you will realise just how quickly you are out of breath. Just how quickly you become tired, disorientated and ultimately ineffectual at being a protector. Like it or not, you just aren't as fit, strong or capable as you believe yourself to be. Don't wait to find out just how ineffectual you are in this situation. Do something about it now. Of course, all of that speaks to physical threats and attacks. In our modern world, we face many more dangers in digital formats. When we were kids, we could get away from some of the pressures of our younger lives. Sure, a bully could get to us during school hours, and maybe even on your way to and from school. But for the most part, once you were home, you got away from it. You could switch off from it. But for the children of today, social media platforms allow their bullies to continue to torment them 24-7-365. If it's not that, then it's ridiculous expectations and standards that are put upon kids to look and act a certain way. And that's before we even get into the risk of online predators. As fathers, you are having to adapt your parenting strategies to deal with these online dangers, not to mention the secretive way in which your children will not want you to get involved in their lives, particularly as they transition into teenagers and young adults. <clears throat> Talk about feeling helpless. You want to protect what I'm sure is the most precious thing to you. But for the most part, you may feel like you have no idea what's going on with your kids. And somewhere between you working long hours to provide, as well as trying to be home to spend time with your kids, they went from little toddlers who beamed at you through a gap-toothed grin when you walked through the door, to young, moody, hormonal teenagers who barely say a word to you and spend most of their time in their rooms, or heads buried in their smartphone. You know, the one you provided for them. So you are stuck once more with a role that you want to fulfil, but somehow feel like you never quite make the grade with it. It's tough, and I don't think there is any one-size-fits-all approach here. In fact, I know there isn't. As parents, particularly as fathers, you're just going to have to do the best you can, but you could help yourself along the way here. Look up yourself from your smartphone. Be present in the moment. Sure, your kids may not want to be present with you, but if you are more focused on what's going on around you than on your screens, you might pick up on the subtle changes that might give you the heads up that there is a wolf at the door and that it might be time to go into sheepdog mode. Quote, The real man gains renown by standing between his family and destruction, absorbing the blows of fate with equanimity. End quote. David Gilmore. The trouble with us men is that we would rather pretend we have life altogether, that everything is perfectly fine in our world. It almost seems reprehensible for a man to say that he is struggling, to say that he feels alone, vulnerable, scared, tired, lost. 
The crazy thing is, the guy sitting next to you, or opposite you, or the guys that you play football with every Wednesday night, or the guys that you play online games with, well, they might just be feeling those exact same feelings. But, as I mentioned in episode one of this podcast, our communication consists mostly of, hey man, how you doing? With a stock of responses of, yeah, good, you? Or, can't complain, or, you know, same old, same old. And that's generally where it gets left. Look, I'm not suggesting that every, hello mate, how you doing, needs to lead to a deep dive conversation into the innermost thoughts of a man's mind. I think even I would find it very strange if a guy I barely knew was trying to burrow deep into my inner psyche. Sometimes a good, uh, <clears throat> sorry, sometimes, sometimes a response of, good thanks you, is sufficient to tick the socially accepted pleasantries. But if you have a number of male friends that you have known for some time, these generalised responses aren't really going to cut the mustard. Chances are, if you know a guy fairly well, then you may have started to open up a little bit to each other about certain aspects of your life. However, let's be honest, such conversations are probably centred around the fact that you and a significant other aren't getting on right now, or the fact that your kids are irritating you and you are pleased to be aware of some peace. But you still haven't really discussed anything real. Why? I think it's because we think it makes us look weak and we feel embarrassed to talk about having an ex- having or experiencing difficulties in life. I mean, what if we got so overwhelmed by the emotions that we have been bottling up that if we dare to open our mouth and speak the words, we might cry? I can't cry in front of my mate. You think I'm a wimp. You think less of me as a man. He might laugh and make fun of me. What if he doesn't want to be my mate anymore? No, best just not say anything. He doesn't want to hear it anyway. I'll just man up. I'm good, mate. You? But what if the bravest thing you did was to say, actually, mate, I'm struggling a bit right now. Yeah, you know what? Those emotions might come rushing forward. And you might hear your voice crack. You might feel your lip tremble. And you might feel tears well up in your eyes. But then that mate of yours says, I hear you, man. I've been where you are. Or maybe, I've got your back, mate. Let's go and have a chat. Or maybe your bravery gave them the confidence to say, Man, I thought I was, I thought I was alone in this. I'm struggling too. We don't have to approach the discussion of our mental health sat in a circle, talking in hushed tones and constantly reiterating that this is a safe space, guys. I'm not saying that that doesn't work, but most men will about turn and walk away from that kind of setup. A good friend and Christian brother of mine put it to me this way. Women talk face to face. Men talk shoulder to shoulder. And I may have touched upon this in the first episode. What he means by this is that as men, we are more likely to talk and be open with each other when we are engaged in a share activity, shared activity or task. But either way, it is going to take a brave man to step forward and get that conversation going in the first place. If a friend of yours that you know well has started behaving out of character and something seems wrong, you may have to push a little harder when they respond with, I'm good mate, thanks. And that's going to be uncomfortable. And yes, sometimes it's going to be a judgment call on whether or not you leave it alone. 
You may also feel that you are ill-equipped to deal with it if all of a sudden a friend does open up and tell you of their struggles. Obviously, some people will be struggling with things that will require the assistance of mental health professionals. So I'm not suggesting that you go out and buy a leather couch for your mates to lie back on while you take notes and offer Freudian explanations for their woes. But in most cases, it's just having a sounding board. Someone to listen to you. Because nine times out of ten, once you've expressed how you are feeling, suddenly the problems you may be facing don't seem so big. You also don't have to be the one to fix the problem. And listen up here guys, because it's probably a mistake you're making with your wife more often than not when she comes to you with a problem. It's not always that the other person is looking for you to solve it. Just listen and acknowledge that whatever it is they are experiencing is tough, or that it sucks, or that it must be hard. You'll be surprised. The other person will feel valued because you gave them that space to talk it, to talk it through, and feel listened to, and they will probably walk away from that conversation feeling happier. This can't just be a once a month thing that we give our attention to in November. Look, granted, we can't always be 100% on the ball with it for the other remaining 11 months of the year either. After all, we all have our own busy lives to be getting on with and we all have our own problems. But, much like we discussed earlier, if we looked up from time to time, put our phones down, immersed ourselves in the moment, became a little more focused, we might notice things that we hadn't noticed before. Signs such as anger, irritability or aggressiveness. Noticeable changes in mood, energy level or appetite. Difficulty sleeping or someone that's sleeping too much. Difficulty concentrating, feeling restless or on edge. Increased worry or feeling stressed. Misuse of alcohol or drugs or both. Persistent sadness or feelings of hopelessness. Feeling flat or having trouble feeling positive emotions. Engaging in high risk activities. Aches, headaches or digestive problems without a clear cause. Obsessive thinking or, po or, or sorry, obsessive thinking or compulsive behaviour. Thoughts or behaviours that interfere with work, family or social life. Unusual thinking or behaviours that concern other people. And thoughts of death, suicide or suicide attempts. And these are things that we can be looking out for in ourselves but also in others. And these may be the signs that alert you that your mate isn't all good, as he said, and maybe it's time to have a real conversation. Guys, thank you so much for taking the time to listen to this episode. I had wanted to get it out for the start of November, but time got away from me. I also appreciate that it is a heavy topic and it may have brought up some upsetting emotions for you. So if you or anyone you know is experiencing severe mental health issues, or if you or anyone you know may have expressed thoughts or feelings of self-harm or suicide, please, if you can't speak to me or a trusted friend or family member, then please reach out to any of the following organisations. Samaritans, you can call them free on 116124. That's 116124. Suicide Prevention UK, you can call them on 0800 689 5652 that's 0800-689-5652 Proprius Prevention of Young Suicide 
You can call them on 0800 068 4141. That's 0800 068 4141. Or you can go and have a look at the Campaign Against Living Miserably website, Calm. There are many other organisations out there that can help. So please, please do not suffer in silence. Or if you know somebody that is suffering, please don't let them suffer in silence. Signpost them in the right direction. Even if you just do that, it might just be enough just to help somebody out or just to get them to talk to somebody. And maybe that will just stop them making that ultimate decision. Also, at your places of work, many organisations have employee assistance programmes and have trained counsellors, and any contact you have with them is confidential. Guys, one, once again, thanks so much for listening to me. I know it's been a heavy topic, um, and we've probably only really just scratched the surface of it. It's so vast, but, you know, it really is important to me, and I just think that we all can be doing a hell of a lot more to just help each other through this situation. So guys, thank you so much. Take care of yourselves and each other and don't be afraid to speak up.